0: Welcome to Ag PhD Radio,
1: broadcasting from the Morton studio today. I'm Darren Hefty. And I'm Brian Hefty. Thanks for joining us. Today in the show, we're going to talk a little about harvest safety. We're also going to get to your calls and questions. We've gotten a lot of questions in, in the Ag PhD mailbag. Got to start getting caught up on those. I'm going to apologize in advance here because we're not going to be able to get to all the questions today. But Hopefully, over the next couple of weeks, we'll uh, we'll get caught back up again. I, I, there's just been this big surge of questions late in the season. People trying to figure out, well, what what what's going on with this? Why does this look so bad? What's happening over here? How do I, how am I supposed to kill those weeds next year? I mean, it's been a lot of fun in just trying to diagnose what the problems are. But unfortunately, um, when I say fun, I mean that from the agronomy standpoint, not from the farmer standpoint, because. Believe me, we farm too, and seeing those issues is never fun. But if we can diagnose what's wrong, figure out a better plan for next year, so hopefully it doesn't happen again, that's always our goal here. If you've got any questions for us, or if there's anything you'd like to talk about that's going on on your farm right now, our number is 844 44 ag That's 844-442-4743. You can also email us, radio at agphd.com, or find us on Twitter, ag PhD media. Darren Hefty or Brian Hefty. Let's get to the Ag PhD Mailbag right now.
0: It's the mailbag! All right, I just handed Brian a stack of about 20 sheets of paper here with some different tissue tests and things. Alright, so this comes in from Terry, and he said, hey guys, uh, got a couple of different farms that I'm renting here in northwest Iowa, and I've been pulling tissue tests off them both in 2021. Iowa? This
1: is Ohio. Ohio. I'm
0: sorry, did I say Iowa? Yes, he did. I meant Ohio. Uh, he said, I've been pulling tissue tests the last couple of years here, so I got 2021 data and 2022 data, and Uh, Anyway, both these fields I've been putting on crop removal only for P&K since it's rented ground. However, last fall I did apply two tons of poultry litter, and according to the tests that i pulled, I should have gotten 169 pounds of P2O5 and 137 pounds of K2O. But after listening to what you guys are recommending on fertility, I'm going to be spreading more to try to build my potash level, especially for corn, since it's testing on the lower end of range. Uh, but what about the beans? When my tissue tests show that I'm in the high range of optimum, could that be detrimental to the soybeans?
1: Uh, Being high, I have never found it's going to be a problem unless you've got something that is exceptionally low. When we talk about just fertility in general, we often use the word balance and I know that's kind of a generic term So you're probably wondering, well, how do I get specific on that? That's the reason why we talk so much about base saturation levels. That's a ratio of one nutrient to the others. So in other words, it's telling you balance. We also talk often on the show about the relationship between phosphorus and and, and zinc, phosphorus and copper. So those are the kind of things that we want to have you take a look at. So when I look at these soil tests, let's start with the soil test. Well, here, hang I
0: just want to add something in here. Okay, you got two things. Soybean tests mm-hmm. pulled at early bloom on July 7th show that the potassium, as you mentioned, uh, normally the lab that you're using says they want between 1.5 and 2.5. Mm-hmm. And you got a lot around... Two, two and a half, even three and a half. So I see what you mean, that K levels look pretty high on soybeans. But uh, you're looking at early bloom. Right. Soybeans haven't used any of the K yet. Well, not much. Now's the time where they're going to start using it as they're putting on pods and
1: filling those pods. R3, R4, R5. This has traditionally been the time that we have... Low levels showing up in the plant tissue, sure. and and we got to get get those levels so up. So my recommendation is pull more tissue tests and yep. take a look at them, and and we
0: like to do it weekly so we can see how that progression is. But uh, go out and pull some now, so it's roughly a month after you pulled them the first time, and see how much they've dropped off. And then you look at the corn; those were taken just prior to tassel on June 28th, and in those the levels are showing a little low, and I would say you are low that's a lot more accurate reading of what's going on out there than what's happening in the soybeans. But those things can get thrown off too. Like for us, we've been in an area that hasn't gotten much moisture. And so a lot of guys in our area are saying, man, my tissue tests are really low. Then I get a rain and all of a sudden my tissue tests look good. Well, surprise, surprise, you just flushed a bunch of K into your plants.
1: Well, yeah, but that's where you got to look at the soil test. The The tissue tests are not predictive. They only tell you what's there that day. The soil test is to some degree, predictive. Granted, if you get no rain, then we get a lot bigger problems. But the I, I'm just saying here, when you have such low levels of potassium in your soil, then it's it's tough. And especially, and I don't mean this, okay, L- let me step back for a second. The highest level I see in all these soil tests is 400 pounds of potassium. That'd be like 200 parts per million. And a lot of labs are going to say, oh, you're pretty good with that. But the problem is your base saturation base saturation level is only 3.4 percent in that in that spot it's just not good enough you got to get that up at least to four percent otherwise you're going to continue to see issues with not enough potassium getting into the plant so yes you you already said hey i'm going to put more potassium on keep in mind this manure that you put out there whatever it was litter uh, i I think i i just say that's going to break down over the next 30 years Yes, there's a lot that's going to come available in the next couple of years. But when you put it out and you say, oh, it's got a certain number of nutrients in, you're not going to get a lot of that right now. When you use manure or compost, you have to supplement that with commercial fertilizer unless you're putting a ridiculous amount on in terms of your phosphorus levels, they're all low in my book. Now, granted, I mean, you've got one that says 112 pounds. Well, that's 56 parts per million. To me, that's not enough for the yield goals I have. But I'm not sure on your yield goals and what you're after. But I can see what you're talking about. This has been rented ground. You know, you've you've, you've fertilized. It's not like there's nothing out there. There's a, there's a fair amount of stuff out there. But just continue to work on some of the balance on these nutrients. So a lot of times with phosphorus to zinc, we talk 10 to 1 is the right ratio. With phosphorus to copper, it's somewhere around 30 to 1, roughly. It doesn't have to be exactly that. And then just keep working on boosting those K levels. And always take a look at your soil pH because you got a few soil pHs down into the 5s, even mid-5s. That's going to hurt you with most crops.
0: All right. Thanks for the question. Thanks for getting out there, doing some testing on your farm. And I think it's going to be fun as you do a little more testing and try and build those K levels up, uh, what you're going to see from that data too. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after this.
2: If we only had 20 words to talk about AgBiome, we would say we are agricultural innovators focused on unlocking the power of the microbial world to deliver unique, effective crop protection solutions. If we only had five words, we'd say learn more at AgBiome.com.
3: Get an extra semi load out of your grain bin. The end zone from Farmshop MFG can increase your stored beans moisture from 10 to 13%. On a 20,000 bushel bin,
4: that's a free extra semi load. Visit farmshopmfg.com for more. Get more durability for less downtime with Soil Warrior strip tillage from Environmental Tillage Systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and reduce passes and fuel usage. Now that's ROI. Learn more about ETS at soilwarrior.com downtime during spraying can lead to huge yield losses keep rolling with the pentair hypro force field this pump features a unique self-regulated chamber that allows the pump to run dry while eliminating crack seals so you can spray longer and more reliably learn more at pentair.com hypro
5: this is stormy fields with your weather forecast today calls for a high of 68 degrees with sunny skies and not a cloud in sight
4: Planting windows can close fast, so when you need both speed and accuracy, choose John Deere. Our exact eMERGE planters and precision ag technologies give you precise seed placement for uniform emergence and the efficiency you need to gain ground. See what you have to gain at johndeere.com slash gain ground.
5: It takes balance to be successful in farming, because what you get out of it depends on what you put in, and Corteva Agriscience gets that.
0: listening to ag phd radio we're broadcasting from the morton studio today and talking about a super important topic here of harvest safety i know everybody gets excited i guess i was just talking to some guys today oh man harvest is right around the corner here for our soybeans and harvest safety has got to be first i know we're all excited to be out there but we want to make sure uh, we get to to live to play the next Came the next time too. Uh, so we got Dan Neenan with us right now at the National Education Center for Ag Safety. Dan how are you doing today?
6: I'm doing great
0: yourself? Well we're doing pretty well and this topic of safety comes at a great time. Well it's always a good time to talk safety but uh, when you think about the safety issues on farms there certainly are a lot of different places where, where you got to watch what you're doing. Uh, where do you start with this discussion around harvest safety?
6: Well, I think the first thing we need to talk about is, you know, getting some equipment out and doing maintenance on it now, taking a look at the lighting and marking on it and making sure that it's well lit and that you're visible. Um, I'm actually uh, working my way towards the East Coast now uh, doing some grain bin rescue classes with fire departments. And, you know, last night, 8 o'clock, it was dark. Uh, You know, so as fall keeps, you know, creeping in, harvest is going to be upon us and, going to get darker earlier so we need to make sure that you know we're very visible with being out on the roadway and you know remembering that you know the farm equipment's going to be going maybe 20-25 miles per hour motoring public's going to be going faster than that so we want to make sure that we give them as much advance warning uh that we're there as we can
0: you know you mentioned the lighting and this is something that's been pretty neat i i love um social media for this where where a lot of guys are showing off what they've done to different pieces of equipment and man some of the lighting things you can do now for for not as much money as you would think are pretty exciting even just for operating the equipment and working around the equipment too at night it's it's a big deal because a lot of guys let's face it we're going to be out after dark harvesting there's just no way around that and uh, we want to be able to see and be safe around that equipment too.
6: Absolutely. You know, the other thing is, as we have it out, you know, and doing maintenance and getting things greased um, to make sure that all the guards go back on, you know, when we have the time to make sure that the guarding is there because, you know, if something breaks down mid harvest, we're in a hurry, um, you know, and we may take off the guard and replace the belt, uh, but then not have time to get that guard put back on. And, you know, that's where we can get into get into some trouble. Um, you know, because that guard's there for a reason, you know, to keep our our hands and, and fingers out of that moving equipment.
0: You, know, you mentioned the grain bin rescue classes coming up and I know a lot of our listeners are on volunteer fire departments in small towns and, and also a lot of guys are in rural areas where we're just a long ways away from other people. Uh, talk about some of the basics of, of grain bin rescue situations that that we should be aware of if uh, we're, we're, we're a long ways from home or we're on a volunteer fire
6: department. Yep. Well, of course, you know, when you start talking about grain bin safety, the first thing to think about is that zero entry mentality. Do I absolutely have to get into that bin? Um, You know, if the answer is yes, then there's some rules that we need to follow. We need to lock out and tag out the power source to the auger to make sure that it cannot be turned on when we're inside. We need to check for air quality sampling to make sure we've got at least 19.5% oxygen in that confined space of a grain bin. Everybody going in needs to be wearing a harness and tied off. And then the rule that's broken the most in confined spaces, especially in agriculture, is entering into that confined space is a minimum of a two-person job. The person entering into the space, and then there has to be a reliable attendant outside the space whose one and only job is to watch what's going on inside that space. And if that person would be to become unresponsive or become trapped It's not the attendant's job to go in after them. It's the attendant's job to call 911 and to get emergency responders into that confined space.
0: Yeah, I think that was the key there, that the person that's outside the bin, their one and only job is safety. And I know how it works on the farm. we get got so many different things going on, and we're trying to get a lot of things done at the same time. You just have to be aware of safety at all times. Hey, Dan, great stuff. We could talk all day on harvest safety. really appreciate the work that you're doing. I know you got a lot of stuff going on here between now and harvest time to get everybody up to speed. But thanks for what you're doing, and thanks for being on the show today.
6: All right. Thanks for having
0: me. Let's head over to Ohio. We've got Dee Jepson with us right now at Ohio State University. Uh, Dee, you heard some of the info there that Dan was was putting out, and it's certainly a lot to elaborate on there. Safety is obviously a great big topic.
5: Oh, yes, it is. Um, And having these little commercials, as I call them, um, a lot of times farmers know all this, but just hearing it again is a great reminder. So, you know, I thanks think, for all you do. Oh, you're, you're <laughs> to welcome. Just remind to us about that.
0: Well, and, and the other thing that I would say is it's not just the, the main operator on these farm operations that needs to hear this. There are so many people that come back to the farm to, to help out their parents or help out their relatives, or, or maybe, hey, you're just trying to make a few extra bucks. So, you're going to go help a couple of farmers out at harvest time. We need those refreshers for everybody in the operation.
5: Absolutely. You mentioned um, some of those folks that aren't out there every day. So they may not know even the protocol. They may not know which field that they're in or how to even call for emergency help if needed. Um, It's really hard to think on your feet, you know, if you have to call for an emergency squad and you're like, gee, I'm back here in the back nine. Um, I'm just helping out, but I'm the one calling for help. So sometimes planning for emergencies and having those conversations now um, or even writing up a little, um, you know, a lot of times guys will have a bulletin board and just go ahead and and take the time now to write up where those fields are. We have already done them for our crop mapping purposes and and all of that. Just make it um, a little bit more formalized can also be used for emergency planning.
0: No, that's very true. That's uh, one of the things that we do see a lot of is just trying to give directions to get places is, is tough. So having that written down on your harvest sheets or on your field maps, I know we see a lot of larger farm operations. They've got uh, detailed field maps for all their folks to make sure they find the right fields. Just adding another line of data there to, to be able to identify those fields would be helpful.
5: Sure will. And especially if um, you can't always rely on that 911 system to work remotely. Um, a lot of times those towers might reroute you to a whole nother station. So if you know on your field maps um, which responding unit would be there, go ahead and just write that phone number down too because uh, you might be able to get a faster uh, response by having the, the closest unit um, show up for you. And that's whether it's a you know, a farm emergency or even a medical emergency, Um, you know, it's not unheard of to to need EMS on, you know, for another situation. So just be prepared for that.
0: All right. Lots of good tips there. Uh, We talked about the road safety just a little bit with Dan uh, too. And I think it's something we need to keep in mind too. We need to take as much responsibility in all these safety situations as we can. We can't can't count on others to, to be fully aware of what we're doing.
5: Oh, isn't that the truth? And as we, um, we rural community, becomes more populated with folks who just don't understand that, that orange symbol on the back of a lot of our farm machinery. You know, it was developed at Ohio State University, so thanks for bringing that up. Um, and it's now one of the most recognized emblems in the world, right next to those, you know, McDonald arches, um, but we still have a long way to go to educate the public on how to share the roads with our oversized equipment. Um, that also has a job to do, and it's, it is sharing the road. Everybody has a responsibility um, to be there, and so let's take responsibility, to, you know, to, to get by safely.
0: Yeah, we've got such big equipment now, too. That gets to be a challenge.
5: Big equipment and long trains. So, you know, I always tell farmers if they could break up some of that. And I know a lot of them do this already. They don't want to be out there traveling with their equipment, you know, during the busy part of the day. Um, School buses are now getting out on the roads as well. Um, So just timing some of that. And then if you could break it up, because we know what the motoring public wants to do. They're going to pass, you know, the five combine or you know the three combines the, the two trucks the pickup truck they're going to comp- pass all five of these all at the same time so if you have uh some some strategic planning as you're going down the road then maybe they could hop into an area as well if they needed to rather yeah. than
0: absolutely yeah it gets to be you're right it gets to be a lot of equipment moving d jepson at ohio state d thanks for the work you're doing we really appreciate it stay tuned we'll be right back
2: What's new from New Farm? Longbow EC Herbicide, the latest in our portfolio of versatile weed management tools, gives you another Carfentrazone option, taking aim at more than 60 broadleaf weed species. And did we mention economical? Longbow EC's low use rate makes it a flexible tank mix partner with most burned down non-selective herbicides. Ask your dealer for Longbow EC, available for fall.
4: Early does it. Strong early season defenses against seedling insects and soil diseases are key to a successful season. The leader in InFurrow Solutions, FMC, helps protect your fields from the start with a growing portfolio of InFurrow innovations. You can't predict the future, but you can plant for it. Visit your FMC retailer or infurrow.ag.fmc.com to learn more. Always read and follow label
0: directions for use.
2: When I step on someone's farm, I feel like I've already walked a mile in their shoes. I spend spring on the tractor and fall in the combine. I see the excitement in my kids' eyes on our farm, but worry if there's enough of it for all of them. I make sure everything Case IH makes meets the challenges farmers face, because I face them too. My name is Ryan, I am a farmer, and I work at Case IH. Case IH,
0: built by farmers. Welcome back. You're listening to AgPhD radio broadcasting from the Morton Studio today. We're taking your calls and agronomic questions at 844 44 AgPhD. You can also email us radio at agphd.com. And uh, we're talking harvest safety on today's program. So we got our friend Tony Wendler with Farm Shop MFG. Uh, to talk about harvest safety a little bit and and stuff around grain bins, but Tony, uh, you're at the Ag PhD Field Day. Uh, did you have a good day?
7: Had a fantastic day. It was uh, it was really an excellent event, and I would like to throw out a comment that uh, a uh, one of the visitors there made to uh, to Becky, my wife, uh, that uh, she said that uh, she really thought it was a great program and talked about first how. As they entered the place for the last uh, mile and a half, two miles, there's flags lining the uh, road on both sides. And people who haven't been there. There are uh, United States flags alternating with state flags pretty close together for the uh, all along the road the whole way in. And then she said, you get to the um, field day, there's farmers out there. They're looking at grain plots. They're looking at machinery. Uh, they're talking to people about uh, different productions. She says, this just feels like America to me. And it's just kind of one of those things that gives you a warm fuzzy when you hear that. But, uh, the, uh, it was just an off the cuff comment. And I thought that really is right.
0: Well, thanks the, Tony. Uh, Thanks for sharing that. That's, that is awesome. And I agree with you. I love the, I love the flags and I love, uh, just, uh, paying our respects for, for all the, the military folks that have made a lot of this stuff possible for us.
7: I appreciate you saying that too. I've got a son in the air force and, uh, and, uh, he likes all the support he can get uh, from all the citizens too. You know,
0: when, when uh, we look at a lot of uh, harvest equipment and uh, grain bins and so forth, Tony, I see a lot of guys getting ready right now. A lot of guys doing maintenance, a lot of guys pulling things out of the shed, getting them, getting them worked on, going through everything. Uh, We're talking harvest safety on the show today and I know you farm as well. What are some of the things that that you would share and, and some of the questions you get around harvest safety?
7: One of the things that's really kind of uh, hitting a note uh, now, and especially you look, a lot of us are are uh, not as young as we used to be. Uh, having monitors that go into grain bins so that you do not have to climb those ladders all the time, and the the other component is having a monitor in the grain bin to uh, be able to know what's going on. Is is that grain heating up, and uh, do I need to get the fans going uh, to keep it in control? So it doesn't, uh, I don't deteriorate a bunch of grain and then have the other possibility that you turn the auger on, pull grain out underneath and have a dome that you could walk up there and the dome collapses on you. If you are aware of what your grain is doing for temperatures and moisture migration, uh, you are much less apt to have that happen. And that becomes a real positive thing for farm safety. And I hear that talked about much more from uh, farmers and as well as you you see and read it on different programs that uh, it's really being considered as a strong component for farm safety. There's a lot of people get uh, killed and injured in grain bin issues, climbing up to the top, uh, grain collapsing inside, being sucked into augers, all kinds of things like that. So things that can help us to be going into the bins less are uh, very big safety components.
0: Yeah, no no doubt about that. And and I know it's an investment to do a lot of these things. The good thing with the green bin monitors that we've found too on our farm, you're, you're right, less climbing of ladders, just overall better management. But we've made money on the grain when we get it at the ideal moisture percentage if we're ever harvesting things a little too dry or too wet. But here's one more thing, Tony, and I, I know that Brian likes to talk about this one quite a bit. We get started a few days earlier, and for us, when you think about safety, uh, if we're not in such a rush, and and we're able to get started a few days earlier, and now we're we're done a few days sooner, uh, that's got to be a big deal for safety too.
7: Very much so that, that you can go at your pace. Um, if if I get uh, like started in my beans on a an ideal fall, I'm out there uh, a little bit earlier in the season. I'm starting uh, in the uh, Earlier in the day, maybe in the afternoon, if I've got a good start on the season and on the, the harvest, in the middle of the afternoon when the air is getting too dry and the beans are drying down too much, quit, service the, uh, the combine, service whatever equipment might need to be, end the day and then be ready for a fresh start earlier tomorrow and uh, have everything done and ready to go as soon as the uh, conditions look uh, that you're capable to run it.
0: Yeah, it makes a huge deal. And I know right now we talk a lot about getting those grain bins cleaned out and ready to go. Here's your shot if you're going to do anything different in terms of equipment, just like with all, all your harvesting equipment as well. If you're going to make any changes or put on some new parts, those types of things, uh, here's your shot on that. With the grain bins, Tony, how long does it take? If it, We have a lot of folks that say, well, I mentioned it in grain bin monitors, but I'm probably too late with all the supply issues and everything else out there. Can guys get equipment? It fast and how long does it take to really set up a bin if you know what you're doing and you have an electrician ready to go?
7: Okay, uh, right now we're we're probably a couple of weeks out on uh, on shipping. Uh, the um, so if you ordered now, we'd probably be shipping here end of August, first part of September. Um, on um, installing, uh, for example, I'm putting monitors into a twenty thousand bushel bin. Uh, our system would probably take somebody uh, first time, first bin they did, five, six hours. Uh, second bin they did, three, four hours. You know, once they start knowing what's going on. Uh, larger bins, uh 60,000 bushel bins. <clears throat> the uh, uh, You're probably looking at uh, 14, 15 hours. You put a fan control on it. Uh, this actual number's 19 hours. I know a guy who... Uh, uh, wired and put fan controls as well as monitors into a 55 and he tracked it and he said it was 19 hours 19 man hours and he was doing his own wiring so uh, it's it's reasonable times that uh, you can get things done one of the things right now is is get the monitors in you can always uh, hook the fan control up later which uh, you got to run wires around to the uh, um, magnetic starter uh, to uh, turn the fan motor on and off so you get the get the uh, cables inside the bin after that you can dump all the grain in and uh, get finish hooking everything else up later if you really feel rushed but uh, there's still time there's still a lot of time and these things do go relatively fast
0: yeah it's it's sure been a game changer for our farm and like you say with safety tony if you don't have to climb those ladders as much if you don't have to get in the bin cuz you got problems uh, that's that's probably one of the biggest safety things because we certainly know grain bin safety is, um, is just a huge deal on farms. And we're talking with Tony Wendler here with Farm Shop MFG, and I know a lot of you folks talked to him at uh, the Ag PhD Field Day. Uh, you can find him at farmshopmfg.com. Uh, Tony, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on and stay safe here heading into this harvest season.
7: Hey, good talking to you and appreciate it. Uh, you have a great day. Thanks, Darren.
0: You bet. Had a had a comment, Brian, uh, that came in, uh, and I thought this was interesting. This came in for Richard. He said, "Hey, I saw your Weed of the Week, and I just wanted to mention this. Uh, that man, I love the animation. That would make for a great video game. You know, that would be Brian. That'd be a cool uh, cool video game for farm kids. If you could <laughs> use the the little monster on the Weed of the Week to to kill things or, or use those cool weapons that we got, Brian. That's that would be awesome.
1: <laughs> yep, great idea. We'll have to work on that.
0: All right." Uh, we got just a minute here before we take another break, and uh, when when you look at some of the. Um weed control issues out here. Got this one in from Tristan, who's down in Kansas, and he said, uh, need some help on herbicide programs. We need more residual on weeds like Palmer, wild sunflowers, buckwheats, and foxtail. We're usually running a group four with finesse and want an alternative for rotational purposes. I, I get it, the finesse. Uh, Wait, that, say that, this again? In wh- what which crop? Uh, well, I'm guessing winter, oh, it's winter wheat. Okay. Winter wheat. He's running a group four, so something like a 2,4-D, right? With a... Uh, with finesse and just looking for alternatives, he's got rotational issues. Uh, wild sunflowers—that's a little tougher to get
1: with residual, but you need foliar, residual. yeah, foliar—you can wipe them out. So, so say again: Palmer sunflower, Palmer what
0: else? wild sunflowers, buckwheat,
1: and foxtail. So, there's really not a problem with any of those i mean other than palmer and you so got to start wanting, with running
0: uh, some some more residual on some of those Yes, yeah, sharpen would be a good way okay
1: to well it. we we got quite a few things to talk about so we'll get to that right after this break all right so we'll uh, we'll break down your
0: weed control challenge tristan and we'll also keep our phone lines open to take your calls and agronomic questions coming up right after this
4: the value of your farm building is in its ability to protect what's stored inside That's why Morton Buildings ensures that every machine storage and insulated workshop we build will provide superior strength and durability. As a 100% employee-owned company, we're all committed to being the industry leader with a focus on innovation, service, quality, and most importantly, customer satisfaction. To get started on your next project, please visit mortonbuildings.com.
0: Don't turn your fertilizer application plan into a guessing game.
2: When it comes to your tillage equipment, stop compromising and start doing more in one pass. New from McFarlane Ag, the Insight 5200 with an independent blade configuration lets you get more done in less time. Ideal for rocky or sticky soil, the 5200 has two sets of independently mounted blades adjustable up to 12 degrees, a unique chopping reel, and five different finishing attachments, giving you the perfect seedbed. Learn more about the Insight 5200 by visiting McFarlaneAg.com today.
3: When it comes to mites in your field, you can't afford a solution that might work. That's why there's ZealPro Miticide from Valent USA. With next-level knockdown and long residual control, you can be sure to handle spider mites at all stages of life with complete certainty. With efficient translaminar activity, apply by ground or air and confidently attack mites where they are. Make ZealPro the definitive answer to your mite problem. Visit valent.com slash zealpro to learn more. Always read and follow label instructions.
1: Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. Brian Hefty here along with my brother Darren. We're live in the Morton studio just talking a little about harvest safety and answering your calls and questions today. So right before the break we get a question in about winter wheat and the concern was Palmer pigweed, sunflower, wild buckwheat, foxtail. And the comment was made, oh we're using a group 4 which we assume is 2,4-D along with finesse. So I mean... You can use those products. They're both labeled in wheat. I don't like either of them though. So let's talk about what we do like. First of all, this the all these weeds can be easily controlled in wheat. It's just, are you willing to invest the dollars? If you want so, okay, I'm gonna step, I'm gonna use uh the the old term that our dad always used to say, if you wanted like the best program, he would say Let's have the Cadillac program. So whether you like Cadillacs or maybe you prefer some other style of vehicle, my point here is we're going to get you the best program. It just depends. Are you willing to spend this money or do you want to have uh, an okay program or do you want to just live with what you're doing right now? So anyway... My suggestion, if you wanted the best program, and you'd have all these weeds under control with no real issue, is you would start it with both Zidua and Sharpen, and yes, you're going to spend $20 plus an acre pre-emerge. Do it right before the wheat comes out of the ground, and you'll have fantastic luck. Two ounces of Sharpen costs around 11 bucks an acre. Uh, Zidua, or let's turn it to Anthem Flex, so you get the... Active ingredient in Zidua plus you get aim for a burn down PPO um, that'll cost you around nine or ten bucks. So you're you're gonna spend right at twenty dollars an acre. Now I realize you're probably immediately saying, "Whoa, that that's more than I've ever spent." Well, if you want the weeds under control, I'm just telling you there are herbicides out there that will do it, and it's up to you if you want to spend the money or not. So a lot of times we'll talk about one or the other, either Anthem Flex more for the grass side. Or we'll talk about Sharpen, which is only broadleaves. But if you say, hey, I got a major problem with foxtail and I have a major problem with Palmer pigweed, then I'm going to do both. So that's what I do. And then I got 98% of my problem already solved. Now, the sunflower, the buckwheat, you can control with just about anything post-emerge. So I'm not that worried about that, except finesse, terrible because it's ALS. And group four, 2,4-D, not super strong on either of those weeds. So you just have to go with something else. Personally, for buckwheat and sunflower, what do I like? I like Husky FX. So that's what I'd use. Are there other options? Yes. Anything that contains the active ingredient from Bucktril is going to take all your buckwheat out for cheap, and it will also kill your sunflowers. So if, if that was all you had left for broadleaves fine, but knowing you've got that Palmer in there, that's where I want that Husky FX post to merge, and you should have everything cleaned up. Now, I realize this whole program, by the time you spend the money on the Anthem Flex pre, sharpen pre, Husky FX post, you're going to have $35 an acre into it, but you also aren't going to have anything left for weeds. So you should have higher yields, and I'm just saying hopefully that pays off. Oh, by the way, with the finesse, the reason why we never recommend finesse is the long carryover. Plus the fact it's ALS, so it doesn't kill a lot of the weeds anyway, like Palmer pigweed.
0: All right. Thanks for the questions. I appreciate that, Tristan. Uh, Okay. This one comes in from Joel, and uh, Joel's uh, west, west central Minnesota. He said, we've got wild parsnip, and my wife and I own about 70 acres. We've been using a mix containing uh, 2,4-D and Escort to try to get it under control. But we found that uh, our LV-6 product last year that we used worked much better than the Amine product this year did in combination with the Escort, which is sulfuron.
1: But did did you use rate for rate? Because LV-6 is 6-pound. The Amine, I'm sure, is 4-pound.
0: Yeah, it would... That's the whole thing here, Joel. Well, that's one of the things, would be what rate of 2,4 D do you use? Because, yes, you should have used 50% stronger rate this second time. Now, here's the other thing. You, you mentioned, hey, you guys were talking to us about not using LV6 on your TV show. Can you clarify what you would use instead? We still feel like we need that 2,4 D in there with the escort to take out the wild parsnip. Okay, first of all, Joel, what we're talking about is using 2,4 D choline, which would be Frelex. Uh, and the reason that we like that better than the amines or esters is not necessarily the weed killing power. It would be the same strength as that four pound material that you're talking about. So you're definitely going to need to boost that rate up uh, accordingly. But the, the thing we like about it is it doesn't volatilize. It doesn't move around, so it stays where you put it. Doesn't uh, drift off and and um, pick up and move and, and hurt other vegetation around. So that would be something to think about. Uh, the other thing, Brian, what do you think about? So they're spraying a fifth. They have a 50 gallon tank. They're covering five acres with it, so putting out about 10 10 gallons per acre. And they're using Escort, which the human safety on Escort is pretty good. So that that I don't worry about as much. But that can carry over a little bit, that met sulfurin, if you ever wanted to raise a crop out in that grassy area. Uh, what do you think about? clopyrrolid or, or triclopyr, so uh, looking at a Not stinger. Not
1: clopyrrolid. You don't want to use stinger when it's, well.
0: When you're spraying it with a four wheeler probably right. in a tank yep. like that. We don't really like you using You don't want to stinger, get it in your clopyrilid. eyes. Yep. Uh, but, but triclopyr might be an option for them. That would well, be sure. Remedy Ultra. Yep. Uh, so you could, you may consider using Remedy Ultra instead of the Escort. But if the Escort's working, that's fine. We just suggest... Putting in, you're putting two gallons of uh, LV6 in, so we'd say you'd have to put three gallons of Frelex in to be equivalent rate per rate. So that's all we do to use a 50% stronger rate if you're going down to a four pound 240 product. Any other comments you get on that, Brian? Nope. Uh, With wild parsnip too, I guess I should mention, typically we think of that as a biennial where you've got the first year and it's just growing in a rosette and it's uh, low to the ground. That's a great time to get it. If you're out in the fall, you can kill those rosettes off really well. The problem with the ones that have already bolted and put on seed and flowers this year is if you wait till fall, you're too late, they've already gone to seed. Uh, What we would recommend if you're in that spot where hey, I've been fighting this for a while, uh, in the spring, uh, everything in the university is are saying is spray right after it starts to bolt, but before it flowers. So you have to kind of keep an eye on things. They've had the best luck killing it at that point. Uh, you can certainly mow it off too to, to prevent it from going to seed and then, then deal with it after you've mowed off that seed head. Uh, that would be something to think about too. Uh, just be careful because, you know, it causes uh, severe skin sensitivities, kind of like poison ivy a little bit. Uh, it's, it's bad stuff. So if you end up with wild parsnip or for anybody listening today, that's the one you don't necessarily want to pull by hand uh, because uh, you're going to have just great big uh, blisters on your skin or, or worse. All right. Uh, another question that came in, Brian. Or a comment. This one comes from John. He said, You guys were talking about grain storage and storing things longer here in Canada. Uh, we, we talk about wheats as being a seven year crop that you may have to save it in the bin for seven years if you need to blend it off for, with higher protein, lower protein, that kind of thing. Uh, so, so we have to be careful about how we're putting it in the bin. That's a great point, John. If, if there's a possibility that you're going to keep grain longer than one season, you want to be really fussy about moisture and insect control and those types of things. Um uh, All right, next question comes from Larry here, and he said, we've got an ongoing debate here on our farm about pigweed control. So uh, we planted this field on April 10th. We sprayed it with... Roundup and uh, a pre-residual program. No pigweed was up at that time. Our farm manager believes that we should disc the field and do tillage. Uh, I'm of the belief the best control is uh, rotation and herbicide management versus tillage, that right. tillage isn't necessary for, for making these things work. Yep. Uh, what
1: What is the best way to get the most out of your pre's? Well, wait a second. Well, I, I don't even know what pre's we're talking about, what crop we're talking about. Where, where, okay, where? Uh, I don't know. Okay, so so I got a lot. I got a lot of questions, is what I'm trying to say. But I mean, I like tillage. It makes the pre work better if I have not enough rainfall. So if I'm going to get if you're
0: doing something like trifluralin, that has to be tilled in, and it's
1: cheap. It's a cheaper option than prowl. But but there are other alternatives if you want to go no-till. Yep. They can work if you can get some rain. Yeah. So, I mean, either way it can work. I don't love the disc in the spring. We're not going to use a disc in the spring because in our geography, that means lots of compaction. That's why I say I don't know where this question's coming from. I don't know the rainfall. I just, I I got more questions than answers here.
0: All right. We'll be right back with more of your questions
1: after this.
4: In a world of Veltima fungicide.
1: Hey, let's do it less dramatic. Just say Veltima fungicide.
4: Okay, Veltima fungicide.
1: No, that's literally the same.
4: Veltima fungicide.
1: Still doing it.
4: Veltima fungicide does it.
1: Seriously, we just need you to say Veltima fungicide. Swift, simple, and secure.
4: Didn't I? Veltima fungicide from BASF in cornfields this summer.
1: Always read and follow label directions.
4: What if your herbicide was easy to mix and tough for weeds to resist? Anthem Flex Herbicide from FMC offers the most effective mode of action for spring and winter wheat, delivering long-lasting control of grasses and broadleaf weeds, including Italian ryegrass, rat tail fescue, and downy brome, plus weeds typically resistant to glyphosate and Group 1 and Group 2 herbicides. Visit your FMC retailer or ag.fmc.com to learn more. Always read and follow all label directions.
3: When it comes to mites in your field, you can't afford a solution that might work. That's why there's ZealPro Miticide from Valent USA. With next-level knockdown and long residual control, you can be sure to handle spider mites at all stages of life with complete certainty. With efficient translaminar activity, apply by ground or air and confidently attack mites where they are. Make ZealPro the definitive answer to your mite problem. Visit valent.com slash zealpro to learn more. Always read and follow label instructions.
1: Thanks for listening today to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Brian Hefty along with my brother, Darren. We're broadcasting from the Morton studio. If you've got a call or if you have a question, you can give us a call 844-44-AG-PHD. So right before the break, we were talking about this April 10th, the pre-emerge herbicide got used along with Roundup. Oh, hey, I got a clarification oh, on that too. Good.
0: It's metribuzin and Metolachlor.
1: Oh, okay. Well, thank you. That helps a lot. All right, so if I've got a group 15 metolichlorus, that's dual, and I've got metribuzin, do I need to incorporate? No, but I need rain, and I need it fairly soon, but again, I don't know if April 10th is early or late. That That's why I was curious where this is at, because if it's in North Dakota, well, I got a month before the weeds are going to come up. If it's Alabama, the weeds are already up. So I, I'm just saying if I was in Alabama, I got to have rain today. If I'm in North Dakota, i got to have rain sometime in the next month. And by rain, I mean a couple inches. So that that's what it's going to take to make that stuff work 100%. Now, granted, you're going to get decent activity out of a half an inch or an inch, but I'm just saying if you want 100% control, you need lots of rain. So th- that's why I, I can't really give you the best answer to this question because I don't know all the information. But I I, I would say... I like tillage. It's another thing that can kill some weeds. You get the herbicide down in the ground. It then takes less moisture. Do you have to go that way? No way. I I mean, I guess what I always tell people is I don't care if you're no-till, strip-till, or conventional till. We can help you, but you just have to kind of let us know what your weed problems are, what your challenges are, and then we go from there. Typically, when you do tillage, you will stir up more weeds and a lot of times we see more weed growth we also see different weeds coming up things like winter annuals I, I, mare's tail for example is the the number one thing that i can think about like when we started going to no-till or strip till on our farm all of a sudden mare t- mare's tail and dandelions started showing up and i'm going what the heck are these weeds doing out in our field but we'd always done tillage prior to that so anyway things change when you go no-till all right. What's next, Aaron? All right. I uh, had a question. Let's see. There it is. You had two questions
0: you wanted to yeah, get to. Yeah. This one came from Paul. He said, In light soils, when potassium subject to leaching, what's the best method and product to add potassium while the crop is growing? Spreading potash over the the top is cheap, and it's a cheap, yep. it's a cheap application, but
1: does it really get into the plant? Just wondering what your preferred product and application method would be. Well, when we talk about leaching of potassium, that soil's got to be awfully light, and that and the m- amount of moisture you get has to be a lot. So I, 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 that, I, I question, are we actually having leaching going on? If And let's step this back just a little bit. If you say, well, is the potash going to be available? Well, if you're worried about it being available, then you apply it a little bit earlier, and then you know it's going to be. So, I, I mean, yeah, if we're talking big rates, it's potash. Do we use a little bit of liquid? Yes. But here's the thing. I don't know. Let's say you have a pivot. Would I consider throwing just a little bit of potash in every single time? You bet I would. So you got lots of options there and I don't think I'd just pick one. On our farm, we never pick just one. We're always running a little bit of liquid. We're, we're Anytime we're building soil levels, we're running dry. But it's, we're also usually doing a little bit of foliar feeding. So, I mean, we're putting that same fertility out there two or three different ways. So that way it kind of spreads our risk in terms of weather and just what the season brings because we never know.
0: All right. Thanks for the question, uh, Brian. This is probably a quick one. This came from Bob. He said, you we were talking about controlling weeds and shelter belts, and it got me thinking, has high-pressure steam ever been used to kill weeds? It seems like a logical and environmentally safe way.
1: Well, maybe environmentally safe, but sounds super dangerous to human beings. So I'd be really worried about that and burning somebody. But anyway, has that been used? I I don't know. Not that yeah, I know of. I haven't haven't heard about
0: that either. But uh, maybe somebody will take that and run with it, Bob. Yep. Uh, I get this one in from Patrick. He said, "Hey guys, I just did an application of Delaro and also a foliar called Manzin Manzinfos. So manganese zinc phosphorus, probably." Uh, he said, "I'm wondering, is there any date uh, for a foliar at tassel that you would say now's the time to cut off, or a certain growth stage where you'd quit?"
1: Not really, but you know,
0: this this is interesting because I was just talking to to uh, some growers from Illinois, and they said a lot of guys in their area spray twice so they'll spray right at tassel or just before and then they'll spray a few weeks later but they said they were considering making another application yet uh, so coming up here in the next week or so so anyway yeah well, you're right depends on what you have for disease pressure out there now the foliar um, the foliar f- fertilizer, Yeah, the foliar fertilizer, I mean, you can do whatever you want on fertilizer. Okay, but
1: but, yeah, what our cutoff is, is when the crop, when any crop starts to senesce. So when it's starting to cannibalize itself. And of course, if there's
0: any pre-harvest interval on any herbicide. But as far as the nutrients go, I don't think it's a pre-harvest interval. So if the crop is still green, you have a chance it could potentially help if you really needed those nutrients desperately. But Boy, yeah, there's a there's a point of no return there. Once you get the black layer, that's that's really well, it for the, the, putting yeah, something but, in the kernel.
1: Right, right, of course. But the, the whole thing here is, is it going to pay? That's what we care about. And that's why applications on fertility are typically earlier in the season, because the earlier it is, the better it pays. And then you just have to pay attention to, do I actually need the manganese, the zinc, the phosphorus? Phosphorus, you have a very difficult time getting it into plant tissues, so... I, typically we're not adding phosphorus out there. We might add a little bit, but it's it's just it's hard to get that into the plant. With all of those nutrients, I personally prefer them in the ground rather than spraying foliar just because I feel like uh, I have a better chance to get it into that plant and then I'm I'm more focused on the early side than the late side, but you can certainly spray later if you want. And with the fungicide end of things, You can spray pretty much any time. Where we see the biggest gains, usually in corn, starts at about, let's call it V6, V8, somewhere in there. And then it could go all the way through R2, R3. But again, like Darren said, you got to pay attention to that pre-harvest interval. And it all depends on what diseases show up. Because, let's face it, if you get tar spot and that shows up at R2 and you just sprayed to prevent it, well, that could pay off big time. But if you have no diseases that show up, then you might be mostly wasting your money on that last shot of foliar fungicide.
0: All right, thanks for the question. Got this one in from Bradley. He said, I uh, was at a presentation here and they were talking about half-lives of pesticides. Uh, and they said, yep. sulfentrazone has a residual half-life window between... 32 and 302 (laughs) days well that's quite a
1: variation 280 days is usually what we say 280
0: my my question is uh, what variables lead to such a wide window and then of course how can i get longer activity or if i don't want long activity is there anything i can do to to speed up that breakdown just wondering what variables i should watch for to determine how much is left in my fields
1: The number one variable we're always going to talk to people about is drainage. You've got to have good drainage. And the reason why you need the drainage is oxygen. If you don't have oxygen in the soil, then you're going to, then the bacteria that will break down any herbicide, they're not going to be there. They're not going to thrive. Along those lines, when you have poor drainage, then sometimes we see super excess salt levels. Well, if you've got a sodic or saline soil, then yeah the the bacteria aren't going to be able to do their job and now all of a sudden that herbicide seems to last it feels like it lasts forever in terms of how short that that could be um, with sulfentrazone i've never seen anything saying 32 days so i don't know exactly but yeah, I've i do know this have never seen it be that short either. no but i do know this with certain herbicides if the ph gets way out of bounds either super high like let's call it 8s or 9 to super low, let's call it down in the fours, I, I mean, at one end or the other, you could have a major problem. Just as an example, atrazine carries over far longer in high pH soil than it does in low pH soil. So you want to make sure that, I, I mean, as a general statement, I, I would suggest you keep your soil pH in the sixes as much as you can, and then you have more normal conditions. But you're going to see some of these extremes when you have those, those pHs off, this is why we talk so much about having your soil just in balance in general pH nutrients everything else the idea is we want to have the healthiest soil possible so then herbicides break down and we also have a crop that's very resilient a crop that can fight off weeds and insects diseases and other stresses so yeah it's just about overall soil health the more you do that then the quicker some of these things are going to break down typically, or at least more normal, as opposed to, oh, it's going to stay there forever.
0: Thanks for the question. Yeah, I thought it was quite interesting, the the picture you sent with the different half-lives and different products. There's there's a few on there that I might dispute oh, just yeah, a little bit. Yeah, we do talk about this on a regular basis. <laughs> hey, thanks, Bradley, though. We really appreciate the questions. And thanks to you for listening to today's program. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.